0: good to be here this morning. If this is your first time here, uh, welcome. We're glad that you could join us this morning. My name is David Mathis. I'm the English-speaking pastor here, though Ruben, our Spanish-speaking pastor, also speaks English. Um, <laughs> God has led us to uh, a, unique, um, a unique thing here at Hope Church, that we are two languages, but one body, one hope. And I'm excited about next week, where for the first time, we're going to do a combined service. Uh, and I hope that you can be a part of that. Uh, we're going to have some English and Spanish in that service. We'll have some English and Spanish in what we sing, um, in what we speak and what we pray. Um, but we're going to be in what we eat, yes. Um, but uh, just going to be celebrating the one God that we share and the one spirit. Um, that lives in us. And it's an incredible thing when we get to just see God at work in that way. So I'm excited about it next week. Um, I hope you can be a part of that. We're continuing our journey through the book of Ephesians this morning. Um, and last week, uh, we took a little bit of a, of a, a parenthesis, or it, it was a, a little bit of a rabbit trail that, that Paul took us on as he paused um, in chapter three, and he had started down this thought, which is an incredible thought, saying, "You know, based on everything that that has come before in chapters one and two, I'm going to say something." And then he paused himself, and he had to explain something real quick about his situation in his life. And it was it was incredible to see Paul's perspective of his own life, um, and to encourage the Ephesians to say, "Don't worry about me here in prison." This is God's work, and it's for you, for your glory of what he's accomplishing, and what a challenge that is for us to look at our own life and what God is doing and the purpose of God in it. Uh, But now we get to return to the thought uh, that he he had begun there. Um, And in chapter 3, actually it was in verse 1 that he had said, for this reason I, Paul, um, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he had to explain what he meant by a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. And then now in verse 14, he's continu- he's picking that back up, and he says, "For this reason." What is that reason again? It's 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 everything that has come before in chapters one and two, and I think also included in that now um, is also some of what was there in chapter the beginning of chapter 3 as he explained his situation and God's purpose in it. But we have chapters 1 and 2 is just this incredible view of God's purpose towards us, his love towards us. And, and we see God, God's purpose to make us holy and blameless before him and, and to adopt us and to include us in the plan that he is uniting all things in his Son. And we see that this love of God in chapter two, taking us from this place of being dead in our trespasses and sins and following the course of this world to now being made alive in Christ. And then then this purpose that that God has to take Jews and Gentiles and to make a new person uh, where we are all one in Christ. And he's now building up his body, the church, as founded on Christ Empower the Holy Spirit to be a place for the presence of God. An incredible purpose that God has. And Paul says, for this reason now. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, the one who is accomplishing all these things. From whom every family, (laughs) why why is this getting me? From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. There's a little play on words going there in, in, in the Greek that we miss. There's a couple times in this I'm going to be jumping into the Greek because there's this cool stuff in the Greek, and we're missing it because we're in the English translation. But, but the play on words is that word for father and the word for family uh, almost sound the same. The word for father is patera, and the word for family is, is patria, um, same root that we would get uh, the patriarchs from. So it's it's these. He's saying, I, I bow my knees before the Father, the Patera, from whom every patria comes, from whom every every family, like we think of a family unit, but from every people group, every nation, and not just every nation, but but on heaven and on earth. So he's saying. Any classification of angels, any class, classification that you would give a name to, God the Father is above all, he has given everyone their name, angels, uh, even Satan in all of his classifications and, and hosts of angels, they were all given a name by God, he is the name above every name, he's the one who created all things and he is the one who now has caused this purpose and, and the manifold wisdom of God has been revealed in Jesus Christ and it's incredible and he says, now I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every name, every father, every family in heaven on earth comes. And it's significant that he says, I bow my knee. He's about to give us a prayer. That's, that's what we're going to be going through as a prayer. Um, but if we look in the New Testament, most often when we see prayer, that it wasn't customary to kneel. They would stand in prayer, Um, and and it would say, when you stand in prayer and you're praying, and that was just more of what we see, the posture of prayer in the New Testament. Here, it's significant that it says, he says, I bow my knee because it's a posture of worship and submission to the Almighty God, and he's saying, look at what God has done. Now I bow my knee before the Father, and he's going to pray. So before we start, let's let's pray ourselves. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would just give us a heart of worship and submission to you. God, that is the only proper posture for us to be in when we consider the work of your hands. When we consider the love that you have towards us from the beginning of time, now that you have accomplished in your son, and now that we enjoy, even in this church, we call Hope Church. So God, help us to have a posture in our hearts to say, you are God, I am not, and to submit to what you have for us. God, this prayer that we're going to be reading through, I just pray this for our own church. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So let's read through this prayer that Paul has said now, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So there's two parts here. Um, there is verse 16 through 19 is, is a prayer of petition. He's, he's asking God for things on behalf of the church in Ephesus. And then verse 20 and 21, in, in, in church lingo, we would call it doxology. It's, it's just, it's, Praise and worship to God for who he is. And, and he brings into, that, into those two verses everyone together. The, instead of praying on behalf of the Ephesians, he's saying, we ask. It's a we. It's, it's us together now um, just declaring who God is and, and worshiping him in those two verses. In this first section of, of petition, petition's fancy word for asking for something, um, as he's asking God on behalf of the Ephesians, there's, there's three things that he's asking for. And this is where I'll get a little Greek in there again, uh, because we lose a little bit of this in, in the English translation. But, but each of those three things begins with the, world, with the word hina, which is just translated that. I'm praying that, this thing, and I'm praying that, this, and that. And, and it shows up three times, and it begins each of the main sections of prayer, and each one building on the other. So uh, the locations of that word would be the beginning of verse 16, the word translated that right there. Uh, The next place is actually beginning the verse 18. We don't see the word that in in the ESV translation at least. Uh, They've moved it back to the middle of verse 17 to make it make sense in English how there's kind of this connecting piece of being rooted and grounded in love. Uh, even though that's part of the previous request, it supports the next one. Uh, but but verse eighteen begins the second request that you may be have strength to comprehend. Um, and then the the final request is halfway through verse nineteen that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. and And keep in mind these these verse numbers were added later. They're not part of the inspired scripture. So sometimes we get this awkwardness of of where the numbers land, not really, Fitting um, the structure of of the sentences. So so that that little bit of Greek, let's put that aside now. So if if I throw a that into the beginning of 18, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, And if I include the end of 17, as if it's part of the request there in 16 and 17, that's what I'm doing. Um, So there's these three requests. Uh, Let's look at the first one. In verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, uh, being rooted and grounded in love. What's he talking about here? What what is this request? Uh, It's through faith. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's resulting in Christ dwelling in our hearts. What's here is... Is saving faith. It's what we saw back in Ephesians 2, in Ephesians 2.8, that there is the power of God at work, but it's through faith that we're saved. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. So what we have here is the beginning of salvation. And it's it's important to realize when we talk about God's saving work, salvation, uh, there's three contexts that we are talk about salvation. Uh, there's, and there's some big Christian words in here um, that I'll explain. So the first one is justification, is usually how we identify that saving work that, that it's complete. At the moment that we believe in Christ, there, there is a real work that God does in our life, in our heart, and before him, uh, that we're forgiven of our sins, that, that we're justified before God because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And, there, and there's more to it that happens at that moment. But then there's, there's what we call sanctification, which is the ongoing saving work of God's work in our lives um, throughout our life. And now that justification part is complete. Um, that never needs to happen again. That's not going to be undone. But then there's a sanctification part where God is continuing to work in our life because really we're coming from a place of following the course of this world, the, the beginning of, of chapter 2. And that doesn't immediately change um, the moment that we believe in Christ. Uh, so, so over time now, he's working in our life, saving us from what our previous life was, which has been put to death with Christ, and now training us in the righteousness of Christ, which is the new life that he's raised us to live in. And then the third part of salvation is what we're looking forward to. We call it glorification. So you have Justification sanctification throughout our life, and then there's that day that we're looking forward to of glorification when we'll be in the presence of God and no longer have the flesh to deal with. And praise the Lord for that hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So what's significant here is that the whole of what's described here we have in that justification part. See, we saw that back in chapter, chapter 1, Um, In verse verse 13, when we covered that, it said, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, at that time were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So at that time that we believed, we received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit entered our lives, and, and Christ is now dwelling in our heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes it can be confusing. We see Christ and we see the Holy Spirit, but what we'll see often in the New Testament is that we experience, uh, we experience the Holy Spirit um, as Christ, and we experience Christ in spirit. So you, you'll see these things interchange that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the indwelling of Jesus Christ in my life. Uh, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in my life is the power of Christ at work in my life. Those, those two are going together. And this is all the completed work that we have from the moment that we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Um, What else is in there? If I look, uh, so I've got, uh, that we're strengthened with power through the spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. But what does it mean that we're rooted and grounded in love? Well, if we go back The very beginning of of chapter 1, I think part of this is just who God has made us to be in Christ. And if I look, um, where did I want to go? Up there. In verse, well, I'm just going to read it. Verse 4, right? Yes. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the praise of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, in Christ. We are, from the moment that we put our faith in Christ, we are adopted children of God. We are in the beloved. We are in Christ. We have his favor as his son, as his daughter. We are secure in the love of Christ. Boy, how we need to really understand the fullness of what we have in Christ that is complete. We are forgiven. That's complete. That's justification. I, I no longer everything that I have done and everything I will do has been forgiven by the blood of Christ. I am fully spiritually seated with Christ in the heavenly places. I have every spiritual blessing in Christ. That was already in here. That's a completed thing that through faith in Christ, that is already done and complete. Why so many times in my life I feel like I still have to earn God's favor. When I, because I'm still following things in the course of this world that hasn't been fully fixed yet, but I feel like, okay, God, boy, this is how many times have I just repeated the same sin, and I'm still struggling with the same thing. Um, how can I even come back and talk to you again? We don't have to earn the favor of God over again. We have that. We are his child. My first son back here, I, we adopted him. There's times where he can get a little rebellious. He's 13. He's entering that teenager stage. Even though there's times where we have to get through discipline, we have to correct things I never cease to love my son. I never cease to look with favor on my son. I never cease to be proud of my son. I'm an imperfect father. Can you imagine the perfect father, his love towards us as his children? We don't have to earn the favor of God. We have the favor of God, and it is there no matter what we do through faith in Christ. Now, maybe you're listening to this and you're going, I don't, I don't think of a time, there wasn't a time that, that I can conceive of where I really came to that point of putting my faith in Christ and surrendering my life to Christ. Well, then my prayer for you is to echo Paul's. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, so that you too could be rooted and grounded in his love. That's my prayer for you this morning. All right, boy, we got to move on. I don't want to be emotional this morning. All right, second request that he makes that's built upon this truth that we are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ through faith. He says in verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What is he saying there? He's saying to know the dimensions, the breadth and height and depth, and, de- and how does it go? The breadth and height and length. Um, of the love of God, which which has been described already as as the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's saying, I want you to know the dimensions of something that can't be bounded, that can't be understood fully. He's like, I want you to know something that can't be known. Right there, we have an oxymoron. He says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What is he talking about there? He's saying, I want you to know that there's no limit to the love of Christ for you. And I want you to know it in your heart, to know that there is no limit to his love for you. How many times do we feel like we've somehow been that person who can reach the end of God's love for us? We've messed up enough times that, okay, God, there's no hope for me now. I've reached the end of your love. Or how many times do we find ourselves um, having repeated that sin, however many times, and facing the accusations of the enemy who's saying, how can you call yourself a child of God? How can you say that that you are a saved Christian? You're not acting like it. And in that condemnation, we feel, boy, how can God love me? But then we've got to go back to the truth of God's word that says there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The limit of God's love can't be reached. We can't know the limit of God's love, but we can know that it is without limit. But how do I come to a place where I really know the limitless love of God in my life? When I was a kid, uh, twice, um, I went on... Well, actually, let me ask ask a question first. How many of you have seen a picture, at least, of the Grand Canyon? Pretty much everybody. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon, stood there on the edge, looking into the Grand Canyon? we got some in there. How many of you have, have hiked all the way down to the bottom and put your feet into that cold water that's being let out of the bottom of Lake Powell in the Grand Canyon? We don't have anybody here. I am the only one. Twice as a kid growing up, my dad and I hiked for a week in the Grand Canyon. And it is one thing to see a picture of it, it is another thing to stand on the edge of it. But then when you start walking down that trail to head into the Grand Canyon, it's incredible. The vastness of the Grand Canyon. Along the along the wall of the Grand Canyon, there you can see it. About halfway down, um, there is this red stripe. We call it Red Wall. It just looks like this thin stripe along halfway down. When you get to the top of Red Wall, it's not this little stripe. It's a it is a massive massive cliff. And and we had reached uh, the top of Red Wall, and we're just taking a break there. And I was a kid. Um, and, and the part of Redwall we were at was in this kind of side canyon, in the Grand Canyon, which the side canyons were massive of themselves. And as we're sitting there, right along the edge at the top of Redwall, there was this rock. It's about this big. And it was right there on the edge. And it was just so tempting. I couldn't resist as a kid to just help it along where it was probably going to go anyway, Right? And I just pushed that rock off the edge. Well, see, in this side canyon, red, the, the red wall cliff went way down. And then, and then at the base, there was this steep slope that went way, 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 way down into the base of the side canyon where there was a dry wash. And, and, and for a moment, I couldn't see the rock after I'd pushed it off the edge. And then I saw it come into view. It was bounding down this slope headed down towards the bottom of that ravine. And on the way, there was this poor small tree that it just busted through, and there was branches cracking and going all over the place. And it continued on, and in my joy, I watched as this rock bounded down this hill far into the distance. And there was in that dry ravine what must have been a massive boulder, but it, was, it looked tiny from that distance. And I saw this plume of dust go, pfft. and then a moment later heard this giant crack from the rock hitting the incredible span of the Grand Canyon, that tiny little bit. There's no way that I could explore all of the Grand Canyon and all of the amazing wonders that are hidden within that canyon. But for me to know it, I had to walk into it. There's no way that we can know the vastness of the love of Christ for us. But if we're going to know it experientially, we're going to have to take a step of faith and we're going to have to follow Christ. In Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live. That's that first part. My faith in Christ, I have salvation, but Christ lives in me. So my life has been put to death Christ is dwelling in my heart, so that that's a completed act. But then it continues in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith, following Christ, the one who loved me and gave Himself up for me. So when we, our first trip to the Grand Canyon. Um, we were met with a storm when we got there, and, and there was this freak snowstorm. It was blizzard conditions at the top, and the group that we were with was saying, should we even attempt the Grand Canyon uh, with these conditions? But we knew as we got down in, in altitude that uh, we'd get past that snow, that it would get warmer and warmer as we went down. So we decided to go ahead and make the trip. We were not prepared for snow. Uh, my dad and I were sharing a pup tent. That's the kind with the two little poles. Um, It's not much of a shelter, uh, definitely not snow gear. Um, But we headed into the Grand Canyon, very low visibility. You're walking down a path and you're looking and you don't see anything. You know there's a cliff there. You know it's going down into this massive canyon, but all you can see is really what's just in front of you. Many times that's what it is to step out in faith following Christ. We only see that little bit ahead of us trusting that it's going to be okay after what is in front of us. And I can tell you that days later, um, well, that first night, we joined with another group that was going to be exploring a cave right there at the top of Red Wall. And, and so we went with them to share that shelter in that cave. It was actually a pretty cool experience. We only had one person with hypothermia. We were good. And when we got Days later, down to the very bottom, where you're standing in desert conditions along the side of the stream, and we're looking up, and we could still see the snowpack. Boy, how I could appreciate the vastness of the Grand Canyon. And when I look back on my life, and I look at those times where I stepped out in faith and trusted the Lord, trusted His love for me in, the, in conditions that were not favorable, And I couldn't see where it was going to lead. But now I can look back and say, wow, the vastness of the love of God for me. There's no limit to his love. All right. The third. Actually, I want to make one more point on the second one. Can't move on yet. It's very, it's very important, and it's, it's almost hidden right in there. Um, in verse 18, he's saying that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. We're not on some journey to understand and gain this understanding of the love of God on our own. That's not his design at all. His design is that we do this together with the church, with other believers, with the saints. We're not going to gain a real understanding of the love of God any other way. So it's important that we see, and and this is a theme within Ephesians, is the body of Christ. God's work in us together, building us up to be the body of Christ and to know his love, to know that there is no limit to his love together as a body. All right. The final... Request that Paul makes there in the second half of verse 19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God. We've seen that language before. It was in the end of chapter 1. When he was talking about how the Father had placed Christ above all authority, above every name that is named, and he has now given Christ to the church uh, in verse 22 of chapter 1, it says, And he, the Father, put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what's at work here is the building up of Christ's body. And it involves real change among us. It involves real change in my own family. It involves real change within my own life. The love of God is changing me. That's not always a comfortable process. But it is the love of God that is at work changing me. And it's going to be changing every part of me. My desires the things that I want, how, how I treat things, how I treat my money, how I treat my house, the car that I'm, that I'm going to go after to buy. It's going to affect everything about me. It's going to affect my relationships. It's going to affect my relationship with my wife. It's going to affect my relationships at work. It's going to affect my decisions at work. Every part of my life now, God is going to be working in. And what is that work that he's doing? It's, it's taking me out of where I was, dead in my sin. It's bringing me into the life that he has for me, and that requires change, and it's the love of God that is changing me. But there's places in my life where I'm awfully comfortable. I don't really want to be changed there. And we're gonna have these things that sometimes we don't realize them until God in his grace has taken us to a place where we're ready to realize that that area of our life needs change, Praise the Lord that he doesn't give them all to us at once. I don't think we could take it. But there's sometimes times where we get to a place where, you know, God, I'm okay with that part of my life just staying the way it is. We don't really need to go there, God. I, I don't really need to, to work on that part. It's, it's okay. I mean, look at all the other Christians. They're doing the same thing. I, I don't need to work on that part of my life. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. God is our Father. What would I do, what do I do when my son is okay with something in his life that I know is not good for him? Am I a good father if I just say, okay, well, that's you just have it your way? Or am I a good father if I lovingly Discipline, my child, to guide him to what is good for him. In chapter 12 of Hebrews, in verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostilities. talking about Christ. Consider Christ who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin... You have not res- yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What is he saying there? We should, not that we should be shedding our blood in order to resist sin, but he's saying, look, Christ, David, Christ went to the cross for your sin to save you out of following the course of this world, to save you out of that, to give you new life. And now you're sitting here comfortable still in that sin. They ha. How hard are you resisting that sin? Are you just sitting there complacent and comfortable with with this sin that now God has given you every resource to resist and to have victory over, and yet you just sit there? In verse 5, he says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? This is the loving father. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, it's very important that you understand the difference between punishment and discipline. They're not the same thing. As we can get into a place in our life where we say, God is punishing me for this thing that I did in my past or or this other thing that I did. He's punishing me for that. No. The punishment for our sin has fully been taken by Christ on the cross. So I'd rebuke that. You're not being punished. Now you might be dealing with the consequence of sin. That's, That's a reality that we deal with. But as we're dealing with the consequence of our sin, we're met with a loving Father who has forgiven us our sin. And now as a good Father is discipling, he's disciplining us to life. So he says in verse 8, if you are left without discipline, in which all, all the saints have participated. So you can expect that there will be discipline. Discipline. There's no question about it. But if you are left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. How how sobering a thought is that if I don't see God's discipline in my life, I should question, am I actually his son or daughter? Have I really put my faith in Jesus Christ? Because I can expect that as his son, I'm gonna receive his discipline in my life. In verse nine, he says, besides this, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. There's that purpose of God towards us to make us blameless and holy before him. Even now, in this world, before glorification, but in sanctification He's working in us to make us blameless and holy before him. In verse 11, he says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen. I I don't enjoy discipline. But if I know that it's from the Lord, and I know it's from God, and I know it's for my good, then I can thank him For it, even in the midst of it, even when it doesn't feel good. He says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And then he says, Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. This is one of those verses that makes me think Hebrews must be written by Paul. See, in Hebrews, it doesn't, the author doesn't give explicitly who they are, so there's so some discussion on whether it's Paul who wrote this book. But, but this is definitely a Paul thing, the one who buffets his body, to, who's, who's so self-disciplined to follow the Lord, and he's saying, get up! <laughs> saying, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. Christ has purchased your life on the cross. He has given you every provision to walk in holiness, and now you just sit there, lazy. Get up. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What do we see as our greatest need, church? When When we pray for each other, um Which is good, and I love that this church prays a lot. Most of the time, the needs that we lift up are, are our conditions, our situation. we have sickness, we have difficulties at work or we're or trying to find a job or, or we're lifting up difficult situations and and it's good, and we should do that and and we've been able to just... Uh, glorify God in, in that he has answered those prayers and we've seen him working in our lives and it's incredible. But when I look back on my life and I look at those periods of time where I had hundreds of families around us praying, lifting us up for the condition and situation that we are in, I now look back at that situation and realize that that was God's hand at work in my life. And the greater need that he was meeting had more to do with me and my heart being right before him than coming out of that situation. So how do we see our greatest need? Do we see our greatest need in terms of the immediate situation? Or do we see possibly that God is using this immediate situation to meet a greater need that has to do with where we've come from, walking in our sin according to the course of this world, and that he has something for our good to work in our heart that when we look back, we'll be able to see the glory of God and we'll be able to see the love of God and we'll say, God, thank you for taking me through that. It wasn't comfortable to go through that, but you allowed me to go through that, and now I see your love was at work in that because how you've shaped my heart. And now I'm better able to serve you. Church, I am not, by my own efforts, qualified to be here as your pastor. I am only qualified because of the work that God has been doing and shaping me through my life. It is by the love of God that he has brought me to this point to be able to pastor a church. How incredible is the love of God. All right, the final piece here. Paul has finished his request for the church, which I echo for our church, that we would see that we are secure in his love, that there's no limit to the love of Christ, that his love is at work in changing us, that it is his hand, his loving hand as a father that is at work in us as a church, as a body, as individuals. And as we consider the vastness of the love of God, the proper response is worship. In these last two verses, verse 20 and 21, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, Paul is just searching for English language on on how he can describe the vastness of the love of God. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. And often when we see the word amen used by the apostles, which we copy, that's, that's how we started using the word amen. It's, it's most often tied to, uh, a doxology like this, where it's a declaration and praise and worship of who God is, and it's expected then that as a congregation, then they would answer, amen. And I don't know if the Ephesians church, when they received this and they used this letter from Paul as part of the worship, if they would have recited um, this verse 20 and 21, but if we could, as a church, if you could go back to verse 20, if we could, as a church, Read this together um, and carry this on to the next generations of just praising and worshiping God. Let's read. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Praise the Lord. And we're going to sing this next song. Um, It's a song written back in the 1800s. And it was written by a pastor uh, who was, he was out walking and this thunderstorm came through and there was fierce winds and lightning and thunder and then that passed. And after it passed, he could hear the sound of church bells. And God put in his heart just the awesome wonder of who God is. It's the proper response for us as a church as we consider the love of God towards us. Let's worship God.